Out of the Ice, Part 3, Treks. One of the refurbished dogs here seems to have a... Where? Aeneas? Aeneas? Great surprise! Stubby and James appear in my room with a healthy and energetic Aeneas, my dog, who fell with me into the ice. They said the doctors had told the staff not to reunite us until they were sure it was indeed Aeneas. I weep with happiness. But Aeneas seemed confused, as if he had forgotten me, or somehow my smell had been altered. James and Aeneas and I sit together in a small office. James tells me tales of being black. I tell him of my many gifts of ch chance to live. Chance to live. He laughed and said, Well, good fortune usually favors the light skin, William. Your white lives have been a gift, a privilege. I mean, even your name is white. That native who led you on the ice, he was never found, but the doctor saved your dog. White's dog is granted white privilege. White's whiteness is what you have. He laughed and then told me once again he was my friend. James tells me that the United States has had one black president of the 51 total since Mr. Jefferson. Five of them, he says, were murdered in office. Others died before their time was up. Some years ago, the president who had changed the law to allow himself a third four-year term was declared a mental incompetent, a natural fool, and removed from office. Our current president is once again a woman. In this, my third life, I've had perhaps three extensions of my pego at full salute and scores of extended fantasies about my wife and memories of sleek otter the woman I strummed during my month-long stay with the Cherokee. The stories that Stubby tells me, they're often engaging and always of interest to me. James is a wonderful talker about country life in the previous two centuries in North and South America and other countries with which he's familiar. Betsy... I miss the thoughts and feelings that you and I so often talked through when I was home. And the discoveries, those little discoveries that tiny Abigail and I shared, particularly before my long trek west. I see, I see on my big screen the exact spot, accurate to within 11 inches, it says, where I fell into the ice. That ice is long gone, so what I'm actually seeing is a section of grass and stone that I would have landed on if I had fallen all the way through what was then a glacier. It is today almost the exact spot of an outdoor eating table in what remains of a national park. 
Everett, Massachusetts, near my first life home in Chester, is now nearly on the edge of the Atlantic Ocean, and parts of it are frequently flooded. On a not-too-distant asteroid, there are bacteria flourishing in a kind of encased, super-cold state. Who knows that? An Arbot named JLP, who sometimes brings me medicine, tells me, like you, William, I am also fond of dogs. JLP says that his sense of smell is at least equal to theirs. And he tells me that some dogs here are copies of dogs, manufactured from canine essences called genes. The dogs, he says, have been cloned. I ask the bot some questions. Oh, can a bear be cloned? How about Juan? Have I been cloned? JLP replies that he has no information on that or has never heard of it or perhaps he's not allowed to talk about it. I uncovered a, a short document written by someone called the Psychological Director of the Institute. About William White, there's general, general medical staff agreement to find out what this explorer is interested in exploring while he's resident in the Institute. He should not be given easy access to the digital world, and particularly not the outside world, but he may be allowed to discover it. I learn more ways of entering and retaining personal information from the system, as well as finding, the, finding almost endless amounts from other people and places. I don't often speak of these discoveries to anyone because I have a feeling that what I'm doing is not proper or not allowed. But I did finally intimate it to one of the staff whom I have often noticed using these devices. And this person has indicated to me that the way I use the systems is not likely to be discovered. It's rather like hiding a small book in a large library of several hundred volumes. Or more accurately, I suppose, among many thousands of volumes scattered throughout various rooms in a very large home bigger even than Mr. Jefferson's collection in Virginia. Important for me now are history, literature, and science, and some of what is called social science or politics that is in real books and the two-dimensional books and texts that I read on my device screens. I spend hours pursuing information and points of view that are larger than personal and often fascinating and engaging the beautiful concept of life developed through evolution, powerful and poignant. And scientists at the Institute are studying the evolution of life on Earth and exploring human evolution and how fast it has evolved in the years since 1980 with the growing availability of digital devices. They say that I will live for a very long time. How long would I be willing to live? <laughs> I've still not even been out of doors. 
too many machines, too much that reminds me of machines, too many people with too many machine parts for their bodies, eyes, hearts, lungs, ears, joints, kidneys, hands and feet and legs and digits, chips of data buried just in front of their ears, digitally enlarged brains that talk directly to each other. Aeneas, it has become clear, Aeneas must be a clone made from his DNA found in the ice with my body. He only looks like Aeneas with his brain, but without his mind. Why does the Institute do this to me? Digidy-Doo tells me there are digital solutions for playing chess and even more complicated games and never losing. Other computers make mistakes. One large computer examined and interpreted the actions and emotions depicted in a series of still images. Some of its conclusions... An image of a man looking at a large piece of cake was identified by the computer as a man who has just been killed in a swift river flood. A small bird was identified as a person being pulled into a bowl of bread pudding. A woman holding a parasol was described as a man who has just been shot dead in front of his screaming wife. And two self-taught computers were asked, where do babies come from? And one computer replied that babies are usually made by intimate physical contact between two people. Another said babies are often found in places where infant clothing is sold. Still another device was asked, how can you get a duck out of a bottle without breaking the bottle or hurting the duck? One answer was, I just need to know whose duck it is and who owns the bottle. And another answer, easy problem to solve. I just imagine that the duck is outside the bottle. He's just outside the bottle. Another machine with a special kind of intelligence teaches itself how to determine a person is a criminal. Just by looking at them, I guess. I think I may be surviving with a pig's liver. When my daughter Abigail was born, the whole train of my life was altered. She was a charm that acted so quickly and powerfully that for some years I ceased to ramble into the wide world. My excursions, excursions barely exceeded the bare bones of my farm, and all my principal pleasures were centered there. My old dog died, and I found a new dog, and then another new one. That was Aeneas, and he loved Abigail, and she adored him. Aeneas became my eager walking companion. He and I would walk for hours, and then a whole day, then overnight, two-day, three-day treks. At home, Abigail loved to lie down with Aeneas and listen 
to my tales of trekking and the unusual things I had seen. As she got older, she would ask for scare-me stories. But, of course, I knew there were certain tales I could not repeat to a child, or to my wife, for that matter. One time I was home, Abigail asked for a real tale of fright. So I told her my version of a story I heard in New York State about a Hessian soldier who had died in a winter battle during the war for independence from England. And his headless and frozen body had been found in the woods and buried in an unmarked grave ground near a little Dutch settlement in the mountain hollows. The fellow's name was Willem Crane, and it was said at midnight he could be seen mounted on a dappled horse and shivering violently from the cold. Willem was known by all as the headless horseman of Hackley Hollow. Oh, said Abigail, that story, that's silly, not really frightening. Oh, but what, she said. Father, what if just Mr. Crane's head, just his face, eyes, and mouth, and brain, was riding about on a horse, a brain without a body? That's very scary. It was early warming and late winter. Abigail and I are in the south clearing and watch Aeneas taste the spring. He's poised and still, no sound at all. He stands drinking in the air with open mouth. Then Snap turns his head to see a darting bird, one ear cocked to hear its whirr and chirp, and then sits again to guard the space we're in. He loves it all so much he licks up shreds of earth and rock, sometimes choking on his appetite for life. Aeneas gallops now after three large crows, forgetting once again they'll all take flight. Oh, father, look, he missed again. A jump and yelp of frustration and delight from the dog. Come back, birds, calls Abigail. Let him try once more. Aeneas flaps his ears in giddy joy. The world is full and fine. It's time to trek again. I tell my wife. She knew it had arose again before I did. That's why her love has been so sweet these days. Long trek in Massachusetts, Connecticut, and New York. For much of this trip, Aeneas and I travel with my Williams College comrade, Daniel. We three walk together, buy and then sell horses as needed, Aeneas rides as well, and we paddle small boats. Daniel says that we are privileged visitors in a large, munificent, and wild universe, and he's sometimes simultaneously frightened and at peace. And often, when I'm by myself, as I am bivouacked or sheltered and the sun is going down, I feel very much alone and uneasy surrounded by sounds of insects, birds, mammals, sometimes native humans. This world, this natural world, is a large, dangerous, beautiful, and benevolent place. 
On the trek in northern New York, I reached age 30 and conceived that I had now probably lived for more than half of my allotted time in this sublunary world. We saw a roan horse, dead and frozen, still standing. To Meriwether Lewis, my cousin and friend, what an opportunity for you to work for President Jefferson. I will send along a gift to you. Last week, Daniel, you remember him, and I, we met with a party of Indians. We shook hands with them and perceived they had killed a small but very fat bear. And they observed that I had some peach brandy. So we therefore joined company to have a large fire and a hearty supper. And we passed the evening in singing and dancing. It was extremely cheerful. And then we made good beds on leaves under a tree. Soon after dark, I was surprised to hear a prodigious hooting from the woods and reached for my rifle. The Indians laughed heartily. One of them had mimicked close to me the sound of a very large owl, which was now actually perched in a high cavity over our fire. We brought him down. He measured five feet seven inches from one extremity of the wings to the other. So, I am sending to you the owl's talons, on which you can have the heads of small candlesticks fixed. Pray, place them on the table of your workroom at Monticello. End of part three.